the, every moment that we get to spend together with the saints. Lord, uh, you are making us good from the inside out. Lord, you are making us new again. Lord, we just thank you for that. And Lord, for that promise that one day we will stand before you uh, complete in you. Lord, perfected and complete. Lord, we just thank you. Lord, uh, open our ears to hear you now in this place. In Jesus' name, amen. Or it doesn't. There it is. Hey. Very cool. Hey, I invite you guys to open up to 1 Kings. And we're going to continue to take a look as we work our way through the story of Solomon. And as uh, tonight we're going to see the building of the temple. And there's so many neat things that, uh, that I hope uh, you guys can gain and see from it as we look. Uh, we're going to be picking it up in uh, chapter 6. So we're in uh, 6 and 7 tonight. I invite you guys to, to join with us there. And as we take a look, here's the things I want you to be looking for. One, the scripture tells in the New Testament the same way that the children of Israel were building the temple. God is building you and I. And as we look at the building of the temple and we look at the way that the stones were, were treated and how the stones were chiseled and how the stones were cut, it reflects or it shows back to us, you and I, that as we walk in this world now, that's the work that God is doing to us. He's the chiseler. He's the guy cutting us as a stone. Whatever stone we're going to be, wherever we're going to fit. First Peter tells us that he's building us into a holy habitation. That each of us are living stones. And that each of us then, therefore, serve a purpose in the building, if you will, of God's kingdom. And our time here on earth is very similar to the stone's time in the quarry. So there's a lot of neat pictures that we'll see in that. And then the other thing that we want to look at as we see the building of the temple is the fact that God is moving from a uh, mobile, temporary worship spot to a permanent one. Before it was a tabernacle, right? The tabernacle, they'd pack up and move, and it would go all over the place. And the tabernacle is just a beautiful picture of Christ and His first coming. But as Jesus came at first, He came and He presents Himself as that perfect sin sacrifice to pay the price for our sins. When He comes again, it is permanent. And we'll see that as we look at the things that God's doing as we open up 
2 uh, Kings chapter 6. And when Jesus returns, he's not building a temporary place. He's not building a place that's just there for, for you know, getting by for a little while. It's permanent. The earth will be his and the fullness thereof. It's all going to belong to him. So we're going to see that as we, as we take a look. And then if we get far enough, uh, I think Haggai the prophet has a little word of encouragement for us as we continue to work our way through. So as we go, we'll pick it up. 1 Kings chapter 6 and the beginning of uh, the building of the temple. So let's take a look. I can't see without my glasses. And it came to pass in the 480th year after the children of Israel had come out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Zib, which is the second month, that he began to build the house of the Lord. As we look at verse 1, the emphasis is on when Solomon begins. It's his fourth year, fourth year as king, and he has now begun the process. The building is happening. It is obviously something that was very important to him, and it's something that he's going to take care of here in the beginning of his reign. So the fourth year of his reign. The other interesting thing is if we take the counting that were given here by Jeremiah the prophet in 1 Kings chapter 6, that would put the exodus of the children of Israel around 1447-ish B.C. for the exodus. So it gives us a date to to take a look at uh, in terms of when did the exodus occur, what was going on. So this is where we find ourselves. Now it says, now the house which Solomon built for the Lord, its length was 60 cubits, its it's width 20, and its height 30. And again, as we take a look at the concept of cubit, the cubit was the distance of the king's finger to his elbow. His, uh, his middle finger to his elbow. That was the, the cubit. So obviously it changes depending on who's king. Uh, the best guess is around 18 inches. We take those figures. Here's the important part of the, of the size it is twice as big as the tabernacle, but it is not a huge building. It's not a huge building, especially by the ancient world sense. It's about 90 feet long, 30 feet wide, 45 feet tall. That's the temple of Solomon based on these measurements. And there'll be quite a few measurements as we work our way through. It says, now the vestibule in front of the sanctuary of the house was 20 cubits long, across the width of the house and the width of the vestibule extended 10 cubits from the front of the house this is the porch there's going to be a porch or a patio that goes all the way around the temple it is not connected to the temple in any way it's freestanding porch that goes around the temple that's going to be used for storage it's going to be used for rooms for the priests it's going to be used for a variety of different things and it says and he made for the house windows and beveled frames. That's something that wasn't in the tabernacle, right? The tabernacle was a tent covered with, with skins of animals. If you didn't go inside the temple, you never understood the beauty of it. It was such a great picture of Christ. Because people who have no relationship with Christ, from the outside, it looks like, what's the big deal? But when you're in Christ, when you come to know Him, when you begin to see Him working and moving in your life, it becomes something totally different. When you go inside the tabernacle, utter beauty. The temple was different. The temple is beautiful the moment you see it. And keep in mind as we look at this, as the, the concept that's being painted for us, 
following the work of Christ is when Christ comes the first time, the Bible says in Isaiah, there was no former comeliness. Nothing special about him that anybody would desire him. Nobody thinks anything great about him. But in Revelation chapter 19, when Jesus returns, everyone's going to see his beauty, his majesty, his glory, his power. All of those things will be coming. So those things are pictured as we look at the tabernacle to the temple. Greater glory, greater majesty. The same with this. Windows, beveled frames. It's much more beautiful on the outside. Now against the wall of the temple, he built chambers all around. Again, here's the vestibule. Around the walls of the temple, all around the sanctuary and the inner sanctuary, thus he made side chambers all around it. The lowest chamber was five cubits wide, the middle six cubits, and the third seven cubits. It was three stories. Three separate floors. So the three separate floors and the measurements of the, the building. Six cubits, seven cubits, uh, five cubits as we take a look at the, at the size. Then he goes on to tell us, um, And he made narrow ledges around the outside of the temple so that the support beams would not be fastened into the walls of the temple. So it attaches, but it doesn't go through. The temple itself is solid, stands on its own. If the, if the porches and all that fell down, the temple would still be standing. They were only connected in terms of that's where the, the, the supports sat on a ledge. But that was it. Didn't go through the building. Didn't go through. And again, as we look at the temple and the tabernacle as a picture of Christ. Now look at this. It says, And the temple, when it was being built, was built with stone finished at the quarry. No hammer or chisel or iron tool was heard in the temple while it was being built. And that's important in light of what we see in New Testament Scripture. So hold your finger here and turn to the book of Ephesians chapter 2. In Ephesians chapter 2 verse 19, Paul kind of uh, alluding to this idea of the temple. Gives us um, some, uh, some important things to think about. Remember, you're looking for Ephesians, Gentiles eat pork chops. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Good way to learn it. Okay, Ephesians chapter 2, pick it up at verse 19. It says, Now therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into the holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a special dwelling place of God in the Spirit. As we look at the scriptures, one of the things that Paul's laying out for us here is we as a body, as the body of Christ, the church, individually, the scripture lays out for us that we are the temple of God individually. But here in Ephesians chapter 2, he's speaking of corporately. Corporately, the body of Christ is being fitted together. And the body of Christ, the whole body of Christ, not just the individuals, but all of us together become a dwelling place for the Holy Spirit. A dwelling place for God. And we're being fitted together. So this time that we spend here is just like those stones. The stones in the quarry being chiseled, being cut, being developed, edges being rubbed off. In fact, as you, as you consider that, turn to the right to 1 Peter. Turn to the right from there and we'll come to 1 Peter. If you get to 1 John, you went too far. 
So then turn left. But come to First uh, Peter chapter. What chapter am I in? First Peter chapter two, verse five. And here's what Peter has to say. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect and precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief of the corner, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. They stumble being disobedient to the word to which they were also appointed. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. That you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of the darkness and into his marvelous light. So here Peter and Paul in the same manner are saying this is what's occurring in our lives on earth now. There was no sound of a chisel or a hammer at the temple. Any more than when we see Jesus face to face will there ever be the sound of a hardship, pain, difficulty, trial, uh, you know, any of that chastisement of the Lord, none of those things, because the stone, when it comes to the place to be fitted within the building and in the presence of Jesus Christ, is all perfected. For now, the hammers are ringing, the chisels are beaten, the stone's being cut. But when it comes to be set, there won't be the sound of a tool again. There won't be any of those things as we fit together perfectly. If you have an opportunity to see some of the stones that were set in this time, they did not have to lay them with mortar. They are so big, so heavy, and cut so perfectly that they fit perfectly together. Perfect. So we're going, just like living stones, are going to be brought together and fit in just that right place. And just here, we see in verse 7, this verse which seems kind of odd to be given to us here, that there was no tools sounding at the place where the temple was built. It's that perfect picture. You and I come into the presence of Christ. We will have been then fitted to our place. When we come to Jesus in heaven, each of us has a responsibility. Each of us has a, a, a job, if you will, a part that we play within the framework of who Christ is and what Christ is doing. And at that moment, there's no more preparing us or getting us ready. We're ready. Here, we're still in the quarry. And the sound of the hammer sounds louder in some of our lives than others. In different times in our life, there's more hammering and less hammering. But God is making you That perfect stone. Jeremiah tells another story in Jeremiah chapter 18 that God is building us or making us into that perfect pot. That the potter has the clay on the wheel and he is making the perfect pot. And when that pot is finished, it's going to be that exact pot, that exact fit within God's kingdom for 
each person for whom the master touches. So I think this is one of the things that we see here. Interesting that there's no sound of tools at the temple. So when the temple's being laid and they're setting the stones, there's no more hammering. They just set them in place. Stone by stone by stone. If you have an opportunity to go to Israel, you'll get a, a neat chance to go backwards in time and go in the rabbinical tunnels and see stones that date back to this time. It's pretty exciting to see. Uh, stones that go back to Herod's time, you can see from outside. And, uh, and then from uh, the lower base or the bottom foundation that date back to the time of Solomon. Well, as we continue, Scripture says, The doorway for the middle story was on the right side of the temple, and they went up by stairs to the middle story, and from the middle to the third. So he built the temple and finished it, and he paneled the temple with beams and boards of cedar. So now the temple's built with the stones. Picture the entire inside being paneled with cedar. Cedar paneling all the way through. Oh, would have been, it would have smelled beautiful at least as long as there was still wood there. But he's not quite finished with it. But he puts the, the cedar paneling, cedar paneling all around the inside. And he built side chambers against the entire temple, each five cubits high. And there were attached to the temple with cedar beams. And the word of the Lord, whoop, I just died. And the word of the Lord came to Solomon, Jackie needs a battery. No, oh, not Jackie doesn't need a battery, he's on, it's okay. You can turn me down, sister. Yeah, I don't want to blow your ears off. So the word of the Lord comes to Solomon. Listen to this, this is what, uh, what the Lord has to say to him. He says, concerning this temple which you are building... If you walk in my statutes, execute my judgments, and keep all my commandments and walk in them, then I will perform my word with you, which I spoke to your father David. God is saying to Solomon, hey, this building that you're building is great. And what an incredible undertaking, and it's going to be beautiful, but more important than what you build is how you live. And we happen to know for Solomon, remember, part of the study of Solomon is to see a, a life that begins so well in trusting the Lord that little by little by little begins to take more and more steps away from God. Folks, we're, we're uh, three chapters, not even three chapters away from a verse that says Solomon's heart was turned away from the Lord. Our three chapters, three chapters from that. We're at the building of the temple and God is saying, Solomon, this is great and this is awesome. But what really matters is, is how you're going to live your life. Not how big a building you can build. Not how massive a kingdom. Think about what Jesus, when he told the story. Remember the story about the farmer who had a bumper crop? He had so much coming in that he didn't have barns to put it all in. He had just had the greatest year of his life. And he got excited and he said, you know what? I'm going to tear down all of this. And I'm going to make it bigger. And I'm going to make it better. <clears throat> and Jesus said, thou fool. Today, your life is required of you. And what did you spend your life on? Bigger barns? You see that bumper sticker that says, he who dies with the most toys wins wasn't invented in the 80s. They still had it 
in Solomon's time. They had it when Jesus walked the earth. Men building for themselves these vast kingdoms. But only what we build for Christ lasts. Not what I build for myself. Where's my focus? Jesus said, if you want to know where your heart is, look where your focus is. Look at your checkbook. Look at your calendar and see where your time goes. I hear frequently, not all the time, I hear frequently, man, I'm, I, 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 got, I, I spend so much time at the church. <laughs> Whenever I hear that, I kind of rub my head because I think I'm here a lot. And I, I know I bump into you every Sunday. But there's, you know, seven days every week. Sunday's not the only day. This is not the only purpose. This is not the only reason that we exist or the reason that we're here. So I find that to be an interesting comment in light of what the Lord is saying to Solomon here. Hey, it's not about how big the temple is. It's not about how beautiful the temple is. And those are all good things. Not bad things. But it's about where are you focusing your time. We're going to see Solomon's focus was not just on the temple. He had other things going on at the same time. So the Lord says to him, yeah, worse things than that too. The Lord says to him, if you walk in my statutes, are you going to walk with me? Are you walking with me or, or, or does it just look like you're really into this because of all the work you're doing on the temple? Are you walking with me every day or is it just, you know, what, what show we can put on? Can I, I put on my holy clothes, you know, and I go to holy places and I don't curse no more and maybe I quit this or I quit that or what have you. And so I, I, I put on that holy exterior, but the Lord says, are you walking with me? Are you walking in my statutes? The one thing that God loved most, I think, about the Garden of Eden was that he walked with Adam in the cool of the evening. And if you go back and you read chapter 3 and you see the fall of man, you'll notice that God showed up for that next walk. It was Adam who wasn't there. God showed up and said, Adam, where are you? Where'd you go? If you walk with me, do you, will you walk in my statutes? The next thing he says, not just walking in my statutes, execute my judgments. Jesus over and over again would talk to the Pharisees about being unrighteous judges. Think about that for a moment. What's an unrighteous judge? An unrighteous judge who makes a judgment against somebody else that's not based on biblical principles, based on some type of other bias, and they make a judgment on that person that they're somehow not fit or not worth it or not part of, of what's going on, and so that's unrighteous judgment. But he wants us to execute righteous judgment. Righteous judgment, that we would be like Christ. And there are times where there are lines drawn in God's word where we need to draw lines. And there are times when hands are outstretched and love is expressed that we, where we need to be outstretching our hands and expressing love. That we would execute His judgments. That we would be righteous as He Keeping all my commandments. We talked about that word keep. It's not a word of performance. It's a word of treasuring. Do you treasure God's commandments? Because if I treasure his commandments, if I value what God says, 
guess what? I do them, and his commandments aren't burdensome because I value them. Because they matter to me. When they matter to me, it's not a big deal. It's easy. Do you keep my commandments? Will you treasure these things that I've told you? And then he says, and perform my word. Or, 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 I'm sorry, and walk in them. So not just to treasure them, but to choose. Now I'm going to walk according to God's word. Hey, that's simple. God's word is pretty easy. I'm supposed to love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. When I fail, I confess, he forgives, and I begin again. Walking in his word, following his precepts, is not hard. We make it that way. It's not that way on the pages of scripture. The pages of scripture, it just means I have set my mind. What did Daniel say? In the book of Daniel, one of the things to set Daniel apart as God's beloved was a willingness to say, I am going to be committed to the Lord and not to these other things. And that set Daniel apart. And God was with him in mighty ways. So even here, then he says, and I will perform my word with you. I'll keep my promises. All the promises I gave to David, I will, I will keep for you, which I spoke to your father. Verse 13, and I will dwell among the children of Israel, and I will not forsake my people. Listen, the kingdom of Israel is only going to last through Solomon's reign. When Solomon's son takes over, the kingdom is going to split. And then about 150 years, we're going to see the northern kingdom in Assyria. And a little while after that, we'll see the southern kingdom in Babylon. Because they didn't want to walk with the Lord. They didn't want to keep his statutes. They were about a building but not about a real relationship with the God who lived in the building, who was a part of the nation with them. So Solomon built the temple in verse 14 and finished it. Now he's going to give us some more of the details. And he built the inside walls of the temple with cedar boards. Everybody remembers that, right? From the floor of the temple to the ceiling, he paneled the inside with wood, and he covered the floor of the temple with planks of cypress. Cypress is kind of a unique wood. Cypress is... Uh, basically bulletproof, impenetrable, worms won't eat it, bugs don't like it, uh, it's, it's long-lasting. It's even going to be more long-lasting when he gets done messing with it, but right now it's pretty long-lasting. So they put the wood on the inside. Then he built the 20-cubit room at the rear of the temple from floor to ceiling with cedar boards, and he built it inside as the inner sanctuary of the most holy place. So again, the most holy place, the holy of holies, the throne room of God, the place where the Ark of the Covenant is going to sit is 20 by 20, 20 cubits by 20 cubits. It's square room, square room, perfectly square. The other section, the outer court or, or, the, or the holy place is twice as long as it is wide. But the holy of holies is a perfect square. So as we take a look, it just gives us an idea of how that all works. And in front of the temple sanctuary, uh, in the front, was 40 cubits long. Again, twice as long as it is wide. The inside of the temple was cedar, carved with ornamental buds and open flowers. All was cedar, and there was no stone to be seen. So first you got these giant stones. Why don't you picture it? Giant stones built into a building. Then inside, 
those giant stones that fit together so tightly that you can't even put a piece of paper between them. He put cedar wood and lined the whole thing with cedar. And then on the cedar, they made carvings. Carvings of, of palm trees and open flowers. And in a minute we'll see carvings of cherubim or angels. So this is how they're carving on the wood. And he prepared the inner sanctuary inside the temple to set the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord there. Now the inner sanctuary was 20 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, 20 cubits high. Remember I told you, perfect square. He overlaid it with pure gold and overlaid the altar of cedar. So they, they lift, the floor actually lifts up a little bit and all the walls that were covered with cedar and the floor with cypress, he covers all that with pure gold. That's what the temple looked like. When you walked into the temple, the floor was gold, the wall was gold, and the ceiling was gold. Now, just picture that concept for a moment, this pure gold being lit from only one place, from where the, from where the menorahs, in the temple there's more than one, where the menorahs stood and gave forth light. How that life would reflect and what it would look like in a perfect gold room. And that's the concepts that, that the Word of God wants us to realize. The beauty, the majesty of a relationship. Being able to enter into the Holy of Holies and to know the beauty that's there in that relationship with Christ. But he goes on and tells us, So Solomon overlaid the inside of the temple with pure gold. And he stretched gold chains across the front of the inner sanctuary and overlaid it with gold. The whole temple he overlaid with gold until he had finished all the temple. Also he overlaid with gold the entire altar that was by the inner sanctuary. That altar we'll talk about in a moment. It's a golden altar, the place where prayers or incense is offered up. So the entire thing is overlaid with gold. Don't forget that in Solomon's reign, they stopped counting that stuff because it didn't have any value. We talked about that. So last time you didn't look in your bank account to see what was there. Solomon didn't look. He didn't care. They stopped counting. They had so much gold. So he covered all the cedar wood in the temple with gold. Well, it goes on. Inside the inner sanctuary, he made two cherubim of olive wood, each 10 cubits high. So 10 times 18 inches, you do the math. That's how tall the cherubim were, made of olive wood. So these giant cherubim. So when you walked in the door of the Holy of Holies, as you came through the door, on either side were these giant cherubim. One part of the wing would touch the wall. Then the wing over the head would touch the wing of the second cherubim. And his other wing would touch the wall. It's massive cherubim. And the cherubim were bent down, looking down, their heads angled toward the door. So whoever came in, came in between the cherubim. Why is that such a big deal? Because the Lord promised the people of Israel that he would always meet them between the cherubim. There were cherubim placed at the entrance in the Garden of Eden. They kept Adam and Eve out. And the inference is that's where God met them prior to the flood. They would meet between the cherubim there 
at the gate or the entrance into the Garden of Eden. After the flood, the Garden of Eden was destroyed. There was no place to meet him. Then later on we see the tabernacle being built and two cherubim built. In the middle between those two cherubim is the Ark of the Covenant where the blood of the sacrifice will be placed where God meets us. Where our relationship with him begins between the cherubim. So here are these giant cherubim. They're, they're carved out of olive wood. And the scripture tells us their measurements. One cherub was ten cubits and so was the other. Both cherubim were of the same size and shape. The height of one cherub was ten and so was the other. And they set the cherubim inside the inner room and they stretched out the wings. So that the wing of one touched one wall and the wing of the other touched the other wall. And their wings touched each other in the middle. Also he overlaid the cherubim with gold. So these cherubim, these giant cherubim, 15 feet tall, covered in solid gold as you walked into the Holy of Holies. And between those two cherubim is the platform upon which they'll place the Ark of the Covenant. Well, it says in verse 29, he carved all the walls of the temple all around, both the inner and outer sanctuaries, with figures of cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers. And the floor of the temple he overlaid with gold, both the inner and outer sanctuaries. For the entrance of the inner sanctuary he made doors of olive wood. The lintel and doorposts were one-fifth of the wall. So the walls are thick, right? They're the big stones. So you have these big thick walls. One-fifth of that is the size of the door. The door that brings you into the temple the door that brings us into the Holy of Holies, the door that Jesus said, I am the door. I'm the entrance into a relationship with the Lord God. So these are made of olive wood. Uh, verse 32, and the, the two doors were olive wood. He carved on them figures of cherubim, palm trees, open flowers, overlaid them with gold, spread gold on the cherubim and on the palm trees. So, Everything's carved into the wood and then gold overlaid over all of that. I can't imagine how beautiful that must have been. I don't know about you, but I've never seen nothing like this. Can you imagine something 90 feet long, 30 feet wide, 45 feet tall, where all the walls and the ceiling and the floor are carved wood overlaid with pure gold? I've never seen nothing like it had to be amazing to behold this place, this house that Solomon is building for the Lord God. It says now, uh, in verse 33, So for the door of the sanctuary, he also made doorposts of olive wood, one-fourth of the wall. You have one-fifth of the wall earlier, now you have one-fourth of the wall. It's interesting because a lot of people make a lot of things about that. Five is the number of grace, and... And, and so they see that in, in terms of one that's one-fifth. The, the, the one-fourth, they always look at the, the, the four faces uh, that we see within the living creatures in the Old Testament that correspond to the four Gospels, that correspond or show or shine that light or that picture to what Jesus Christ has done for us and to us. So whether or not that all fits, is, it really doesn't matter. The point is... This is the measurements, and God is so perfect, he gives them every dimension. 
And they write it all down because this building really mattered to them. And I want you to understand, this building really mattered to them, but what really mattered to God is how are you walking? How are you living? What are you doing? That's what really mattered to him. Well, in verse 35 it says, he, Then he carved cherubim and palm trees and opened flowers on them, the doors, and overlaid them with gold, applied evenly on the carved work. And he built the inner court with three rows of hewn stone and a row of cedar beams. So listen, verse 37, In the fourth year the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid, the first stone, in the second month, the month of Ziv, and in the eleventh year, in the month of Bul, which is the eighth month, the house was finished in all its details and according to all its plans. So he was seven years in building it. Literally, it's seven years, six months, from the second month to the eighth month. So, seven years, six months in building it. It took him seven years, six months to do it. We, we talked last time about this huge work party he had. You know, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people working. Seven years, six months. But when we start chapter 7, I just want you to look at chapter 7. We'll just go a couple of verses and then we'll, we'll take a look at some things. But I want you to see this. In verse, chapter 7, verse 1, what's it say? But Solomon took 13 years to build his own house. When I, when I look at it, I, there's nothing wrong with him building his own house. Nothing wrong with it. At all. But remember we said when we started to look at the life of Solomon, we're going to see little things and we're going to say, well, what's the big deal? I mean, he built this house. He can take as long as he wants to build this house. You're right. And that corresponds exactly with that story that Jesus told of the man who spent all his time building bigger barns and bringing in bigger harvests until his life was over. Where... Do we spend our time? What do we do with what God has given us? You know, looking at things in different ways. Not how much do I give? How much do I keep? Of the 168 hours every single week that God gives me, what of that 168 hours is devoted to Him? What of that 168 hours is devoted to me? And if you want to kind of, I don't know, give yourself a, a check, take a look at it. There are certain things that's required. I mean, God's Word tells us we're supposed to take care of our families. There's supposed to be things that we do. But that doesn't mean that every moment of every day of, of my life needs to be spent on me. And what of that which is spent on me has eternal weight for the kingdom of God? There's a lot of things that we can spend our life doing. Some of those have an eternal weight of glory. And some are just building bigger barns. David, or, or Solomon here, took 13 years to build his house. And it's just going to, just a few verses I want to share of how he's building his house. He also built the house of the forest of Lebanon. Its length was a hundred cubits. Its width, fifty cubits. 
its height 30 cubits with four rows of cedar pillars and cedar beams on the pillars. It was paneled with cedar above the beams that were on 45 pillars, 15 per row. So you have three rows of 15. This room itself is called the Forest of Lebanon in the Palace of Solomon. And later on in Scripture, we're going to see a golden shield on every pillar. This building, which is huge, is the armory. It's the place where they store the armor, the swords and shields and different things. It's called the Forest of Lebanon. And it's huge. Much, much larger than the temple. Well, the temple had to be any bigger than it needed to be. Much, much larger building. Well, it goes on. There were windows with beveled frames in three rows, and window was opposite window in three tiers. So you have three levels. Remember, this is 30 cubits tall. 30 times 18 inches is, how tall is it? 45 feet. So 45 feet tall, like the temple, same height, three rows of windows on each side. One window straight across from the other window. And all the doorways and doorposts had rectangular frames, and window was opposite window in three tiers. He also made then the Hall of Pillars, another building. Its length was 50 cubits, its width 30 cubits, and in front of them was a portico with pillars and a canopy in front of them. So a giant front porch that he builds. And he had a hall for the throne and the hall of judgment where he might judge. And it was paneled with cedar from floor to ceiling. And the house where he dwelt had another court inside the hall of a like workmanship. Solomon also made a house like this hall for Pharaoh's daughter whom he had taken. All of these of costly stone cut to size, trimmed with saws inside and out, from the foundation to the eaves and also on the outside of the great court. The foundation was of costly stone, large stone, some ten cubits, some eight cubits. And above those were costly stones, hewn to size with cedar wood. The great court was enclosed with three rows of hewn stone and a row of cedar beams. So were the inner court of the house of the Lord and the vestibule of the temple. Now, King Solomon sent and brought Haram from Tyre. So this, this little section of scripture dealing with the house that he built just deals with the time and the effort and the materials that he used building his house. And I don't think it's a big deal other than it is the beginning of another step where his focus has come off of walking, living, judging, being who God wants him to be, and has come on to, I mean, really, how big a house you need. We're still a couple chapters from 700 wives, 300 concubines. We're still a long ways from all that. He built this for himself and another one like it for Pharaoh's daughter, who was his, his first wife there. So she's got her own place like this. And he spends almost twice as much time building it. Now while we're just kind of chewing on that, and again, it's not bad to have your place. And it's not bad to put time into your house. 
And it's not bad to, to build for yourself a kingdom. My question is, where is your focus? Is your focus on your kingdom? Is your focus on that? Or is your focus on the Lord? When we begin in a few, uh, a few weeks to look back at the life of Solomon, you're going to see a relatively short period of time devoted to the work that God had originally given him to do in the building of the temple, and a vast amount of time spent spinning his wheels because he had all his time on his hands. So he kept piling up for himself women, and, and horses, and gold, until... He couldn't keep track of any of them anymore. In light of that, just go uh, turn to the right so you come to a little book called Haggai. Haggai is right before Zechariah, right before Malachi. Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament. So if you get to Matthew, go left. In Haggai, there is a prophecy that Haggai gives that I think is kind of an interesting place for us to just spend a couple of moments in light of that to, to take a look at. Now, Solomon is going to do an incredible dedication of the temple, an incredible prayer, and his life is not off track yet. So please hear me, his life is not off track yet. He's just starting to take steps. He's starting to develop habits that are ultimately going to take him away from where he wants to be and focus him on things that he doesn't want to be focused on. So in Haggai chapter 1, beginning in verse 3, it says, And the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses and this temple to lie in ruin? The Lord begins to talk to the people in Haggai about inverted priorities. And I want to make a special note about that word ruin. It means more clearly, I think, deserted, empty, desolate. At the time of Haggai, nobody was going to the temple. Nobody was there. Nobody was offering sacrifices. It was in ruin through lack of use. So the Lord says to them, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in paneled houses in this temple to lie in ruins or deserted? Is my focus on my own personal security and my own comfort? Because the words of Jesus kind of fly in the face of that concept. Personal security and comfort. Not that we should live our lives so recklessly that we don't try to pay attention to those things. But Jesus did say that we're to forsake all for him. And there's often times in our life where we can talk ourselves out of forsaking all for him in light of, but I still got to make the the boat payment or I still got to take care of this or that or the other. And I'm not saying not to do those things. What I'm saying is, is that our focus? Is our focus our own personal security and comfort? Think about the great buildings in our world today. Once upon a time, the great buildings of the world were what? 
They were churches, temples, and cathedrals. What's the great buildings today? Buildings of business and entertainment. Colosseums. No different than the Roman Colosseums. Except for the games that are placed on the uh, that are played in the in the floor below. What was it for? Entertainment. Entertainment. It becomes the mark of the world. And if we look at the mark of the world, what is the mark of the world? The world is looking after personal security, housing. What's the, what's the number one talk of presidential election is the economy. How's the economy doing? What's going on? Because if the economy is doing really good, you know, I can overlook a lot of stuff. I can overlook the, the moral degradation of a president and the choices he makes in his personal life. I can overlook all that if the economy is doing okay. It's all good. Right? None of that matters. Or do none of us remember Bill Clinton? So when we, when we look at those things, and it's interesting, in light of this prophecy from Haggai, which is just getting started here, it is, is, are our priorities inverted? Are our priorities inverted? Hey, I believe that we're to keep our vows to the Lord. So the place I have placed myself... It's my responsibility to take care of, and, and God will provide, and those things are going to work out. It's all good. I'm not saying everybody uh, abandon all your responsibilities. It's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is to take a look at those things and see if your priorities are upside down. If our priorities are upside down. I don't know anybody, well... I personally don't know anybody. I may know of people, but I don't know anybody who has dedicated themselves to a life of ministry for whom that became such an economic blessing that they stopped counting their gold. Because I think a lot of times when we follow the Lord in that direction, God wants us to live in a a life that requires us to look to Him for our provision, to look to Him because if I can do it on my own, I don't need him. I can just go through the, I can go through the motions. So there's that, that idea of, of being willing. I know several guys who spent years and years in missions. Who walked away from lucrative positions in the world. They could have made a lot of money. But felt directed by God on a call to go to the Philippines and give seven years of their life. Living in a hut. And now they started a church in Rupert. The Lord brought them back home from the Philippines and they're on a, another adventure, but the same kind of an idea. Are our priorities inverted? Is our focus what I get or what I give? It's a lot of times that focus gets messed up in church. Just recently within this last week, there was... Uh, a situation that occurred, somebody left the church because they weren't getting what they needed. I always find that somewhat curious. Because Jesus said, through the New Testament scriptures, whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. What does the Proverbs say? If you want a friend, be what? Be friendly. Oh, so shocking, isn't it? Isn't it amazing how that works? I mean, 
Don't think that the body of Christ exists to entertain you or to meet your needs. As much as the body of Christ exists to give you a place where you fit, where you can be a part, where you can be a part of ministry. Are our priorities inverted? Happens all the time when we talk about things in regard to worship. I I catch myself. There are certain things I can do in worship. Certain songs really speak to my heart. But I forget sometimes. Worship's not about what I like. Worship is about what I give to my Father in Heaven. What I offer to Christ. And I can do that with anything. If my heart, my priorities are not inverted. What do I get? But rather, what do I give? Well, this section goes on. It says in verse 5, Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. I want you to think about what you're doing. Just hold your thumb there and flip to the right till you come to Philippians. Remember, Gentiles eat pork is Philippians. P, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. In Philippians chapter 2, This is what he says, uh, uh, Paul writes to us, beginning in verse 2, Fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, or a single passion of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem, what's it say? Others how? Better than yourself. My focus is supposed to be me. Or is my focus supposed to be others? Are my priorities inverted? Or are my priorities where they need to be? Back in Haggai in verse 6, the Lord says, Consider your ways. Think about this. Verse 6, You have sown much, but you bring in little. You're sowing seeds, something. Maybe it's, 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 uh, it's speaking in regard to a harvest. The idea being... There's a lot of motion, but there's not a lot of return for the motion. You're sowing a lot, but you're not bringing in very much. You're sowing a lot. The emphasis is on a meager harvest. Is there a meager harvest in your life? Is there a meager harvest of souls? Is there a meager harvest of opportunities to witness? Is there a meager harvest of worship? Is there a meager harvest in your life? This is what the Lord is saying. A lot of motion, a lot of work, but a meager harvest. You eat, but you don't have enough. The emphasis in that section is on, are you hungry? Is there a meager harvest? Motion, but, but not a lot of return. And am I hungry for something? I, I got food. I got all these things in my life. I live in the United States of America. There's never a lack for anything here. I have all this stuff around me, but at the end of the day... Is there still a hunger in my life that is not satiated? I have food, but I'm still hungry. The next thing the Lord says, you drink, but you're not filled with drink. Are you thirsty? Didn't Jesus say these same words? Let him who thirsts come. Come. Let him who hungers do what? Come. Let him who labors come. Come. To him, 
That's where the satiation is. But what's he saying here? Here he's saying, listen, is there a meager harvest? Are you hungry for something? Are you thirsting for something? Is there a desire and you're, you just can't meet? People talk about things like a God-shaped hole in your life. That there's emptiness and I can put all kind of stuff in it, but I'm not full. I can eat all kind of food, but I'm not satisfied. I can drink all kind of drink, but, I, but I'm never satisfied with that either. The, the next one he says, you clothe yourself... But no one is warm. I can't tell you how many people have talked to me at one time or another and say, I just numb. I'm cold inside. I don't feel anything. Is there the inability to satisfy the purpose in life? Because that's what Haggai is writing to. The last one he says in verse 6, and he who earns wages puts them into a bag with holes in it. Tell me you don't experience that in your life. At the end of the month, I bet every one of us go, where did it all go? I'm pouring money into a sack of holes in it. This is just bleeding from everywhere. I don't even know where to put the tourniquet. The idea that the Lord is saying in this is when you're considering I'm living in this fine place in houses of panel, God's house is empty. But my focus is on my life and my living. And when it's like that, I'm going to have a meager harvest. I'm going to hunger for something more. Something's missing. I just have this nagging feeling that my life is not what it's supposed to be. I have this desire, this thirst, like a thirsty man I can never quite quench. I have this cold feeling inside. I have this, this numbness that, that wants to overtake me. And no matter how many clothes I put on, how many coats I wear, it's not it. It's, it's not where it is. And, and, and the money that I get just dissipates. It goes away. Malachi... The Lord said that when we live our lives out of balance in a spiritual, a spiritual sense, particularly with our finances, that he'll send the devourer and the devourer just eats it up. Joel called it the, the locusts. I'll send the locusts and they'll eat everything. But these are special locusts because they didn't just eat the grass and the trees. They ate it all. Everything. Lock, stock, and barrel. I'll send the locusts. When, the, when our lives are out of balance, they don't line up with what God's word has for us. This is the warning. He says, I want you to consider this warning. He lays it out there. Hey, if that's something that speaks to your life, it's God speaking to you right now. So listen. Then he says in verse 7, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Now, first he said, consider your ways. This is your temperature. Take your temperature. Does, does any of this speak to you? Okay, if it does, listen up. Consider your ways. In verse 8 he says, go, bring, build. He says, go, bring, and build. He says, go up to the mountains. Bring wood and build the temple. We already talked about in the scripture in the New Testament says that believers, you and I, we're the building blocks of the temple of God. 
We find ourselves in an empty life where things aren't matching up and it's not really been what it needs to be. It may be that our priorities are inverted and our emphasis is on me, on self. And the emphasis that Christ calls us to is an emphasis on others. An emphasis on others. So he says in verse 8, I want you to go. Doesn't this sound like Matthew chapter 28 when Jesus said to the disciples, Hey, here's what I want for you. Go! Make disciples of all men. He said, go to the mountains. Gather wood. Bring or bring wood. Go to the mountains and bring wood and build the temple. What's the building block? What's the wood for the temple of God today? The wood for the temple of God is you and I as believers, as people. Go, bring, build. Becomes the cure for the inverted priorities of a life like Solomon's. It's not way off track. He's just getting started. He's a young man. It's okay that he's got nice stuff and God's blessed him. We're going to see God say, hey, my hand of blessing is on you. God's given him the gold. God's given him all the stuff. He's got a hand of blessing upon the life of Solomon. But the point is Solomon's heart begins to then focus on stuff. And he loses focus on what he was doing in the first place. Building the temple. Building a nation that will bring others from around the world to Solomon to see what God has done. We'll see it take place one time. Haggai then gives a warning years and years and years later. He says, is our attitude like David's? You remember David's priority? Hey man, bring it all, give it to the Lord. David piled up all kind of stuff for God's house. He, he saved gold and silver and wood and building objects. And it was all for him. It was all to bring glory to God. That was his focus. You remember what David was called, right? A what? Man, how? After God's own heart. His priorities, not perfect, his priorities was a life dedicated to the Lord. There's a lot of things in our world to take our priorities, right? Sure, every one of us, there's a bazillion things to do in our world. A bazillion things to take our time. There's some things that we have to do. There's some things that we don't have to do. And I think God's calling us to take a look at our priorities and see how we've set them up. What really matters? I don't think it'll be, at the end of your days, I don't think it'll be how many houses you have, how big a house or nice a car. But it may be, like verse 8, those relationships you built when you went and you brought and you helped build the temple of God's perfect picture of making disciples of all men, baptizing them and teaching them, bringing them to Christ and allowing them to become a part of that temple. Listen to the last words that God has to say here in Haggai. He says, In verse 9, you looked for much, but indeed it came to little. And when you brought it home, it blew away. Why? He answers, because my house 
is in ruins. And again, the phrase is empty can be substituted, deserted. My house is in ruins while every one of you runs to his own house. Priorities. Therefore, the heavens above you withhold the dew. The earth withholds its fruit. For I called for a drought on the land and the mountains and the grain and the new wine and the oil, whatever the ground brings forth on men and livestock and on the labor of your hands. The Lord said he called for a drought, a dryness in our life. I've experienced that dryness. There have been things in my life, a variety of times in, in my years in ministry, before my years in ministry, even to today, where God says, Jackie, is this really something that needs to be in your life? Because is that time, time well spent? Is that time a value for the kingdom? Because your life right now is being a hewn stone here prepared to be fitted into your spot not someone else's spot every stone is not the same they're all different they all fulfill a purpose nobody else can fulfill your purpose it's your purpose it's your place we're being prepared am i a part of that process by presenting myself to the lord for his work or my priorities get a little inverted sometimes. And God's got to get my eyes back on the prize. Right? Remember what Paul said? Not that I have already attained or imperfected. But what did he say? One thing I do. Forgetting those things which lie behind. Because if we look behind us, we see lots of problems, right? Agreed? I know I do. I look behind. I got lots of problems. Lots of dumb things I said or did. Forgetting those things which lie behind. I press on to the upward call Christ Jesus my Lord I put my eyes on Jesus and I move to the prize that is a life well spent amen why don't you stand with me let's pray Heavenly Father, Lord God, we do thank you for an opportunity to study through the Old Testament scriptures, God. And it's so amazing to see your word living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, able to divide asunder between the thoughts and the intents of our heart, God, doing a work in our lives. We ask, Lord, that, Father, as we look into the mirror of your word and your word reveals things in our heart and our life, that we would not lose sight of what you have said when we turn away from the mirror and forget what manner of man we were. But rather that we would apply your word and allow you to do your perfect work in us and through us. And that we would hold fast that call even the Haggai the prophet gives to go, to bring, to build. God's house is not this building. It's the body of Christ. And we want to bring as many building materials as we possibly can into the body of Christ. Lord, we ask your blessing and your anointing. And we thank you for perfected praise from the mouth of babes. We ask your blessing upon it all. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're gonna, I'm going to enjoy...
giving her grief about her snorting when she gets older. <clears throat> We're going to have a time of worship. We invite you to close out worship with us, and we'll meet you out in the, in the uh, courtyard or the foyer afterwards for some time of fellowship. God bless you guys, and go in peace.
We just thank you. What a great God. What an awesome Savior we serve. Lord, we just thank you, Lord, uh, that we can come and just uh, pour out our praises. Lord, uh, pour out our hearts in, uh, in your word, Lord God. Nothing greater than our God. Lord, go with us as we fellowship. Lord, uh, may... Our praise and our prayers continue from this place. Lord, uh, we just thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.